my name's Miranda Van Hoof. I'm the Executive Director of Military and Emergency Services Health Australia. Um, so for those of, of you who haven't heard of us, um, we are one of 10 charities that sit under the Hospital Research Foundation Group here in South Australia. And we're an independently funded research institute um, that delivers stakeholder-driven research programs, services and training to emergency service personnel, military and their families. And your talk at the conference is entitled Working with Military and First Responders in Research and Clinical Practice. So I guess, first of all, just tell us what you mean by military and first responders and what life has been like for those groups of people in your part of the world in recent years. So I've been working uh, in this field now for the last 10 to 15 years, um, working with research on current and ex-serving military personnel, but also emergency first responders. I think they're called public safety personnel um, overseas. Um, essentially, um, I've been doing some big prevalence work, so looking at the prevalence of mental health conditions in these populations. Um, so obviously, yeah, there's been a lot of deployments in recent years, and so we're looking at the impact of those deployments on mental health, but also the impacts of other uh, traumatic events and lifetime experiences on their health as well. I guess that's a really broad population. Give us a sense of what sort of people fit into these categories that you help. Uh, yep, so in Australia, emergency service personnel cover um, firefighters, um, they cover police, they cover state emergency services, uh, and also ambulance officers. Um, we also have a like, massive big volunteer workforce. I think there's about 140,000 emergency service volunteers here in Australia, and about 80,000 uh, full-time emergency service personnel. So a pretty large population. Military-wise, I think in Australia we have about 50,000 uh, regular serving military members uh, and then obviously a whole stack of people who have transitioned over recent years as well. My talk really covers 10 things that you need to consider uh, working with both military and emergency services personnel. That's both in research and practice and I think there are some commonalities um, across both those populations. Um, so the sort of key things that I really wanted to talk about are um, really the role and the importance of families. So whether they're emergency service personnel or military personnel, um, family members um, play a critical role in building resilience and also supporting the mental, mental health of service personnel. Um, not only do they uh, assist the emergency service personnel to access care, um, but they're also, I guess, ingrained in the identity of being an emergency service worker or a military personnel, and that, that has implications as well for how, the type of community that they're involved in. Um, so in addition to that, there's also impacts on families as well. So, um, for instance, a research, research study that we did looked at moral injury in families um, and showed that there's a lot of family members who are impacted by sort of, the, I guess, the impacts of the organisational responses to critical incidents um, and also the ways in which sometimes the organisations fail to look after their service um, family members. And so that was an interesting finding that came out of one of our research studies. Um, the other thing I think that we found um, is the importance of adopting a life course approach to mental health and well-being of um, service members, both military and emergency services personnel. So what we do find is that there is a picture of increasing severity of both mental and physical symptoms from service to civilian life, um, with rates of mental disorders and those who leave military service being almost double the rates of those who are still in service. So it's really important to look at that trajectory over the life course, really from 
from when people first join to when they leave service. And that includes uh, even includes things like childhood trauma and the impacts of those um, types of traumatic events on mental health conditions in children, which we know is a big predictor of, um, of disorder in adulthood. Um, one of the uh, military and emergency services, Health Australia, has a strong focus on cultural competence. Um, so what we tend to see both here in Australia and probably internationally is that um, there is a lot of clinicians out there who don't have the, um, I guess, in-depth understanding, training and expertise and credibility to effectively communicate and build rapport with emergency service personnel and veterans. So um, one of the things we're interested in that measure is really sort of highlighting the importance of um, lived experience and cultural expertise in working with military and emergency services personnel. The other thing we've found in research is there are some early warning signs of emerging disorder. Um, so uh, in the big prevalence study that we did in 2010 and also the Transition and Wellbeing Research Program that we do, did in 2015, um, we found that, you know, you could really start to predict who's going to develop a disorder later on in life by looking at um, certain symptoms. So, for instance, um, people who had sub-syndromal symptoms of mental health conditions um, or had high levels of anger, um, had suicidal ideation or that sort of big cumulative impact of lifetime um, trauma, those people are more likely to develop a disorder over time. And we looked at that over a five-year period and showed that people who had those symptoms five years earlier the ones who tended to progress on to mental disorder five years later, which is really interesting. Um, we, we also know that um, certain service members are a greater risk of poor mental and physical health outcomes than others. So this is really important, I guess, for clinicians, but also researchers working with service personnel um, in order to be able to clearly identify those people at risk and also to carefully monitor them over time. Um, so uh, the recent research that we've done has shown that people who are medically discharged from the military, for instance, um, for a mental, mental or physical health problem are more likely to have um, a diagnosable mental health condition once they transition. Um, people who are seeking support, obviously, through the mental health system have higher rates of disorder. Um, army personnel, particularly of those of lower ranks, are also high risk um, of having uh, mental health conditions, as are early service leavers. And an interesting finding, actually, when we looked at some of the data was that there seems to be um, an increase in rates of symptoms at about the one-year mark and also the three-year mark for people leaving Defence Force. And this was actually replicated in a big national suicide study that um, was done here in Australia, which showed that suicidal ideation and attempts also increased around that three-year three, three year mark. So I guess when you're looking at that sort of transition from um, the military, it's important to keep those sort of time points in mind. Um, in terms of um, early intervention and prevention, um, obviously this is, you know, one of the keys to long-term sustainable mental health, as we know. Um, so we know that uh, frontline personnel, such as emergency services personnel, are great at responding to a crisis because that's what they do every day, um, but they're not so great actually at preventing injury in the first place. So, um, you know, one of the points I also want to make is about really um, true early intervention and prevention involves first teaching service personnel and also the military um, to be self-aware and to fully understand what their job entails. Um, this means understanding what it is that they're going to be exposed to over the course of their career, what things might impact on them and what sort of um, works for them at an individual level. And of course, this all has to be filtered, obviously, from the you know, top down um, and comes from good leadership and really open and frank conversations around mental health in order to reduce stigma. 
Um, probably the other thing um, we really encourage at MESHA is the need to be innovative uh, and to look um, beyond um, sort of standard evidence-based treatments for things like post-traumatic stress disorder um, to look at the ways in which we can enhance those treatments for certain individuals. So we know that um, things like cognitive behaviour therapy and eye movement desensitisation and reprocessing, cognitive processing th therapy all work quite well for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but for some people, it's about 20 to 30% of people, um, they're not as responsive to those treatments as others. So um, one of the things we also really encourage is to be quite innovative um, and look at potential treatment adjuncts that can support, uh, I guess, well-being and functioning in those individuals beyond the standard treatments that they're receiving. Um, probably the other thing um, that is similar across, it's actually similar across all those occupations, including actually non-service populations, is that um, correlation between physical and mental health. Um, and this is something that we've been considering actually um, in relation to uh, firefighters here in, here in Australia. So um, one of the things we know about firefighters is that there is a high risk of injury. Um, and uh, in addition, um, when we looked at predictors of psychological distress in an Australian firefighter's population, what we found was that injury was one of the strongest predictors of psychological distress. Um, interestingly, when we then looked at the relationship between um, psychological distress, injury and somatic symptoms, we noted that those people who had psychological distress were more, also more likely to perceive their injury as being more severe and had more physical symptoms associated with that particular injury. So you see this sort of cumulative effect um, of injury and psychological distress, which I think is really interesting. And some of the work we're doing now at MESHA is really looking at using um, physical performance as a way of sort of engaging emergency service populations um, to start to look at longitudinal health surveillance and also monitoring mental health. Um, so we know that emergency service populations and also military are very focused on their uh, physical performance and they have to have um, quite a high level of um, physical performance in order to undertake their job. Um, so what we think we would, what we're trying to do now is really get people to look more holistically about their performance um, in relation to both physical and mental health in order to sort of stop that progression and also to intervene early and in symptoms. Um, the other thing I think is incredibly important is um, really focusing on translatable outcomes and really making this an obligation rather than an add-on. Um, so having been an academic for the past 20 years, um, you know, one of the things I've found is that often we do research um, and then it gets published in journals and it's read by academics worldwide, but actually the um, applicable outcomes of that research are not often seen. So one of the things I think also needs to change and what we're trying to focus on at Military Emergency Services Health Australia is me really making those translatable outcomes um, an obligation. So in every grant that we write, we have that translatable outcome embedded in that program in order to ensure that the stakeholders and the people who are doing the research in the first place can see the outcomes of those of that particular study. And probably most importantly, uh, and this is something that we struggle with every day in, in academia, I think, and also, um, you know, as clinicians, is um, the importance of collaboration. So, uh, you know, it's something that we don't do very well. And I think everyone's uh, very 
um, insistent on trying to protect their own space and um, what this inevitably does is is stops the transfer of information and education and I think essentially limits our ability to provide good services to um, service personnel worldwide really. So that's sort of I guess my an, an overview of what I'll be talking about sort of the 10 things that you need to consider I guess in relation to working with military and emergency services personnel. <laughs> There's something about innovation within this field that then inspires other fields. You know, I've really noticed around, you know, the sort of PTSD development around, you know, the early 90s and Gulf War syndrome and how kind of military mental health inspired all sorts of different, you know, and there's a kind of causal correlation thing there, isn't there? You know, would it have happened anyway? Would we have become trauma informed in our services? You know, that whole movement that's happening. But there's something about if you could reflect on how the field that you work in is innovative and then it reaches out beyond its trajectory right so um, whether you're in the military or whether you're in the emergency services or whether you work at a bank or whether you're a hairdresser um, you can sit anywhere on that particular spectrum so uh, and it might be also that you oscillate on that spectrum depending on um, the day of the week or the things that are happening in your life at the moment the degree of stress that you're under so um you know a lot of the a lot of this sort of innovative programs that I'm seeing at the moment things like say um we're doing a study at the moment looking at assistance animals for veterans with PTSD um you know these and, and another one is a, a group emotional relationship skills training program which really looks at emotion regulation skills training um and also enhancing relationship skills so all of those things really work across every population um, so you don't need to have been in the military or in the emergency services or, in fact, to have a mental health condition in order to see the benefits of some of these adjunct interventions. Um, so I, I think they're highly valuable to anyone, really, regardless of your service background. Um, in fact, I quite often say we all need to do a bit of emotion regulation training at the moment, you know, especially when we have children. It's not something that's rocket science, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's certainly... Um, it certainly transgresses, you know, I think the occupation, absolutely. So is it just that we are organising our systems and services in such a way that we're funding this kind of work better, you know, in the way that it's happened in the US with the Veterans Administration? Is it just that we're reaching these people where, and we're not reaching people of colour who are living without a house and very little income? Well, you know, I would actually argue that they're not being funded well. Um, so this is the kind of point of, I guess, is where I'm coming from. I mean, we've been doing a study now for six years on assistance animals for PTSD, for veterans and emergency services for PTSD. That study has never been funded. So we've applied for funding here in, in Australia. We've applied for funding internationally, and it's never been funded. The other program that we're running, we're running about three other programs now, all of which sort of worked on that transdiagnostic skills-based interventions to um, inform mental health and it's incredibly difficult to get them funded so I think actually that's half of the problem is that there's so many innovative adjunct interventions out there which you know really can support individual veterans and can support individual emergency service personnel but because there's not the evidence base behind them getting the funding to actually um, create that evidence base is incredibly difficult so um, really it comes down, I think, to the drive of the researchers um, involved in these things to make it happen, but it's incredibly difficult, actually. 
And you spoke about um, collaboration and the importance of collaboration. Um, I wondered if you could say something about, or just give us an example of how that works well in, in a way that um, gets all the right people around the table and levels the playing field in terms of the kind of power and the politics of mental health research, because it's really complicated, isn't it? It's very complicated, and particularly in academia. Academia is incredibly um, competitive. Uh, you know, the, the way I think it works well is when um, people are um, happy to accept their own limitations and to bring people into the fold when they know that they, when others have strengths beyond their own. Um, so we have some amazing collaborations happening um, now uh, at Three Meshes, so with the University of Western Australia, actually they're Curtin University now, um, and Flinders University, and those collaborations are working beautifully. And really it is about everyone um, providing their own knowledge, contributing, all having the same sort of sense of purpose about, about what you're trying to achieve, but also being open to um, sharing the glory, I guess, in the outcomes of what you're finding. Um, too often we see academics in particular really trying to sort of um, protect their own space and inevitably what that means is that the the end user misses out because we're all coming um, at the same problem sometimes from multiple different perspectives and if we all sort of put our minds together and work collaboratively and I think share share the income and um, share the credit then we can achieve so much more for for those we're trying to serve. 